There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Health Minister Stephen Donnelly is live here in studio for the very latest on the government's COVID-19 strategy with a further 101 deaths reported today. Europe correspondent at Euronews, Shona Murray, will be live with the very latest from Brussels. We'll discuss the impact lockdown has had on our children, particularly those with special needs, with Dr Carol Barron from DCU and Social Democrat TD Catherine Murphy. And later in the programme, we'll be joined by Irish Road Victims Association member Leo Ligio, who lost his 16-year-old daughter in a road accident to discuss the number of drug driving arrests last year. Get in touch on Twitter, as always, our hashtag tonight, VMTV. Tonight we cross live to Brussels where Europe correspondent at Euronews Shona Murray is standing by for us. Good evening Shona. There's been much criticism of Europe's vaccination rollout over the last number of weeks. What do the figures tell us at the moment as to how the various countries are performing? Well, you're right, the rollouts in terms of the member states has been um, sort of scattergun. You know, countries like Denmark are doing particularly well, Germany's doing well, Ireland's doing pretty well. Uh, but uh, um, the problem is really not the rollouts as much. Well, the, at the moment is really getting access to the vaccines. And we know there's been huge problems with AstraZeneca in particular, and then Pfizer a couple of weeks prior to that saying that they were going to temporarily be shutting down production at their Belgian plant. So right now, the rollouts isn't necessarily the focus. It's really just making sure that vaccines can come to the European Union. And that's really been the problem uh, for some time. And I'm sure then after that, we will have issues around rollouts. At this point, um, Shona, given the rather ugly row that took place last week between the European Commission and AstraZeneca, has there been any further development there? Any sign of any further vaccines coming from AstraZeneca? And any sign of the EU following through on that threat to stop uh, the export of any vaccines produced within the EU? Well, yeah, on Sunday there was uh, some news from uh, Ursula von der Leyen. She announced that AstraZeneca would provide 40 million doses as opposed to 100 million doses, which was what initially was uh, the plan for the first quarter. So there was a small increase. Obviously, it doesn't really make up for the shortfall and it doesn't really uh, ease the tensions about what happened with AstraZeneca. Um, you know, the EU's position after releasing the contract on Friday was that AstraZeneca is obliged to use the UK plant as part of a network of, pl of plants uh, to fulfill the EU's contract. And any lawyer that I've spoken to says that's pretty clear that AstraZeneca has no right to uh, prioritise one contract over another, regardless of the fact that the EU signed its contract three months later. 
And in relation to the export authorization scheme, the the, the uh, idea is really not about blocking exports per se. So, for example, even two um, two uh, vaccines, two sets of vaccines left the EU to date from the U to the UK and Canada, for example. So, the point of it is really for the EU, it says, is to provide transparency so that you don't have a repeat of the AstraZeneca issue. Because for a long time, there was a suspicion that uh, what happened with the EU's um, part of the AstraZeneca contract was that it was actually exported to the UK. And the EU and many in Brussels believe that that's actually what happened and that's why the EU is suffering a shortfall. So from now on, each member state will have to be notified or be given notification from vaccine companies before they export to a third country. Um, and they can just have that sort of information at hand. And if it happens um, that it, it feel the EU member state feels that there's something untoward happening, they can possibly block exports. But I think it's in really, really minor circumstances. All right. Thanks for that uh, update. Appreciated, uh, Shona Murray there from Neuro News. And in studio, we are now joined by Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. Uh, thank you for coming in Thanks, to Stephen. us, Minister. Um, I just want to start, I suppose, by touching on an issue that's really lit up social media uh, for the last 48 hours since it was revealed in the Sunday Independent that through your communications with the Chief Medical Officer, Tony Houlihan, in response to, a, I think, a text message that he had sent you about uh, the OR number uh, increasing in Dublin, that you responded with a thumbs up emoji yeah are you surprised at all by the reaction from the public to your style of communication yeah tony and i actually were we were talking about this uh yesterday i think and i think we were both a bit bemused at the uh at the reaction to it you know i mean there was it was a serious piece of journalism obviously and it was looking at the relationship which is uh which is which is all good the, the reaction to using a, a thumbs up emoji, like for me, I think for most people it means thanks. So yeah, I think Tony and I, we, we were um, bemused, per, per, perplexed by it. But look, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, it is what it is, isn't it? So to those this evening, you know, watching her saying it was a bit curt or a bit casual or maybe just a bit dismissive of something that was, you know, potentially quite serious, the rise in the R number, what do yeah. you say? It was shorthand for thank you. I, I, I think that's what it is. That's what I use it for. You know, it wasn't a winky face. It wasn't, you know, like Tony and I, like our offices are about eight meters apart. We work together. Uh, we spend a lot of time together. Uh, I think he and I probably had three separate meetings today. We deal with heavy stuff, you know. I mean, the, 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 the workload is very, very serious. Mm. We communicate back and forth a lot, mainly, mainly face to face. Um, but by text, you know, we share information by text. And sometimes for, emojis get used? For, well, for me, it's short, just shorthand for thank you, you know? So, yeah, we, we both looked at, the, at, at the, the online response and I think we were both uh, bemused by it, to be honest. OK, we're well, moving on then to something perhaps yeah. a little bit more um, serious. I know you've just said there that your relationship uh, with Tony Hoolan and, and I presume Neffet is a very good one. I think you said it was excellent at one point uh, earlier today. Yeah. But when it comes to the issue of border controls mm. and what we do about international uh, travel, yeah. um, it was clear, I think, from that feature in the Sunday Independent a couple of days ago, that when it comes to that issue, mm. there has been real strain. Would you admit that? Well, I, I don't think there's been strain. I, I think what's clear is Neffet's position. Let's kind of depersonalise it away from the chief medical officer himself. I think Neffet's position uh, has, right from May, 
uh, on border controls being they they always wanted to see tighter and tighter border controls. And of course, if if your job, which their job is, is, is public health and that's their remit, then of course that makes sense. And what government had to do, the previous government and now this government, Minister Harris and now myself, uh, and, and the governments was look at that advice and say, okay, but in the round, you know, we're, we're a small open economy. Uh, there are reasons why people need to be able to move on and off the island, north and south, east and west. Um, and so ultimately what was decided was we'd move in line with the EU uh, traffic light system. Uh, th that's what we did. And then I think when the UK variant uh, was spotted, so the UK raised the flag on that on a Friday evening, and on the Monday, um, a decision was taken to ban travel and to, and, and to move to, 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 to up the, the border controls. Yeah, but I'm just looking, I suppose, specifically at the emails between yourself and, and Tony Houlihan. There was one here on November the 7th where Tony Houlihan said uh, a pretty stark warning. I must point to the relative weakness of measures we apply at points of entry. Our COVID border control measures do not give me assurance as mm. Chief Medical Officer. You replied the following day and said, in a pretty terse response, it would have been useful if you'd aired your concerns when asked for your view. Yeah. To which Tony Hoolan came back and said, this has been a major concern for Neffet since May. And he goes back to, you know, quoting an email uh, from May where they yeah. raised this. So, first of all, I suppose, was it taken seriously enough by our government? And second of all, that weakness that he refers to on November the 7th, did you bring that to Cabinet? Yeah, so... It was taken very seriously, and, and Tony's view uh, and Neffet's view were very much on the record, right? And when the variant of concern in the UK was spotted, obviously we, we moved and now we've put in place issues, uh, controls for South Africa, for Brazil. Uh, we're bringing mandatory quarantine in this week. But yes, the Neffet's view on border controls uh, would have been known back to May, uh, as he said, back to his... And there'd be many his... who said you know, what you're talking about now is too little, too late, because you said you put stronger measures in place when the UK variant was yeah. recognised, but at that stage it was already in Ireland, too little, too late. The South African variant is in Ireland, too little, too late, some might say. The Spanish variant, which people, you know, link to the second surge, mm. um, you know, we didn't stop that because, again, our border has been fairly meekly controlled, I would say. Is it all just a little bit lacklustre, Minister? So I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think Neffet's advice has been very serious uh, and they have flagged it. Government has had to balance that against uh, the Ireland being a small open economy, against North-South and the fact that we have an open border with the UK via, via um, Northern Ireland. So what Ireland did uh, was we moved in line with the EU. So the EU had a traffic light system uh, very much informed by the ECDC. And that traffic light system was in the context of the fact that these, these viruses do, as you say, they do mutate. So we had a Wuhan uh, strain, we had an Italian strain, a Spanish strain, a Danish mink strain, a UK strain. Which we've allowed all of those to come into the country. Uh, well, not the Danish Ming strain. Uh, the Brazilian strain hasn't been identified here. The South African strain has at low numbers, and obviously our focus is, is on keeping it down. But obviously the UK strain uh, has become very serious here. But the border controls that were, that, that were in place and that, uh, that, that are in place uh, were part of the EU's response to this. And indeed, I, I think 
in mid-December, the ECDC itself uh, issued a letter to, to member states saying it thought the travel around the Christmas period uh, across international uh, barrier, uh, borders would be okay. So, so, so that was the expert, uh, expert view at the time. I yeah. think. Um, talking about the mandatory quarantine, the hotel mandatory quarantine, yeah. which you've now decided is necessary for those coming in from Brazil and South mm. Africa, when is that actually going to be operational? So the, the cabinet decided just last week that, that we would do this. And for me, the most important part of it is not the hotel quarantine. I know there's a lot of focus on that, and that is coming. Uh, the most important part will be brought in in the next few days, and that's mandatory quarantine. Now, for most people, for the vast majority of people, that's going to be mandatory quarantine at home. So we're moving from advisory to statutory. Okay. Uh, and, but let's and, just and, go back to these two particular strains, because you said last month that you're particularly worried about the South African yeah. and the Brazilian strain. Yeah. So when are we going to see people coming from those countries going into mandatory hotel quarantine? So Can you put a date on it? Because it, your own tarnished your own cabinet colleague yeah. today has said that you're leaving yourself open to criticism from the public because this has just been introduced too slowly. That's not what he was saying. What, what he was saying was he, he hopes to see it introduced in the next few weeks, but it is a complex thing to do. So the, the decision was made uh, just last Tuesday, obviously bringing in secure detention facilities, which is what we're talking about, is a complex thing to do. So the question is... So do what, we have any idea of a time? A date. We, we don't have an exact date. We have, we're bringing forward legislation that's been drafted. But, but does that not worry you, Minister? Because Tony Hoolan um, said last week, I don't know if he was addressing um, yourself, there is 2,191 passengers who've come in from Brazil. Out of that number, that's between December 22nd and January 14th, 2,191. Out of those, only 600 came forward for the free COVID vaccine that's been offered. Mm. Out of that number, 52 alone tested positive. These people are coming into the country as they're entitled to do. Yeah. And at least, what is that? 5% of them, 2% of them rather, have COVID-19. Maybe not the Brazilian variant, but they have yeah. it. And, and, and you're telling me that those people are just going to be requested, man made mandatory to eventually, you know, to remain in their homes. Is that good enough? Yeah, so, so they're not being requested to maybe stay in their homes. So what's happened is, first of all, the visa programs have been suspended, right? So if you arrive here now uh, and you're not, you're, well, you're not a resident in Ireland, you, you can't come in. Uh, secondly, for those who are residents, while the uh, hotel facilities are being prepared, there's 14 days statutory quarantine. So it's a very, very serious measure. So what you've got to do... It's a serious measure, but there's been really serious questions raised by the Gardaí as to how that's actually going to be policed. And we've seen the, I would say, abject failure to ensure that the advisory that people remained at home uh, for 14 days was followed through. So what confidence are we to have that people will actually remain at home for 14 days if it's made mandatory? I mean, there's a reason you've decided hotel quarantining is necessary. Yeah, so, so a few things. First of all, what we have found in the past is when you move things from advisory to statutory, actually get a huge amount of compliance. So take face masks, for example. Um, there's almost 100% compliance on public transport, uh, in crowded places, in, in, in retail. Um, there's been very little enforcement needed of that because people understand, look, this is the law, this is a serious situation, this is but what we're doing. you accept, I'm sure, Minister, it's very different to ask somebody to put on a face mask 
going into a shop for a couple of minutes and to ask somebody to remain in a room in their house, isolated from everybody for 14 days. So, so, so not in a room in their house, but, 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 in, but in their house. So, so let, let's go back and see. So what's in place now? Before you come here, you have to have a clear PCR test and you have to have taken that within three days. If you arrive here without that PCR test, that's an offence. You'll be prosecuted for that. Uh, the information I have is that 99% of people at the moment arriving have that. So that, that's the first layer of security. The regulations... Although Neffet have said that'll miss 40% of positive COVID cases. Well, what Neffet, well, yeah, but that's not, that's not all. So what Neffet have said is the two PCR tests back to back. So the test before you arrive here and then the day five test uh, will catch the will catches the cases and and, and Neffet are comfortable that uh, if you get the day five test that if that's clear as well then you can end the 14 day but critically not for South Africa and not for Brazil. Okay, is there disquiet within the Department of Health that this quarantine, a mandatory quarantine in a hotel, has fallen to your department given the fact that you have to oversee so much at this point. I, That's I been reported I, I, today. I wouldn't say there's disquiet, but. Um Look, the Department of Health is a busy place, right? And, and the HSC uh, are flat out. Yeah, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And should that have been given, do you think, to another department that perhaps isn't as flat out as you say the Department of Health is? Well, it, so far it has been a whole of government approach. So the Department of Health is working very closely with Justice, Foreign Affairs, Transport, uh, Taoiseach's Taunish, there's... Uh, as well. It, it can't just be the Department of Health. You know, the core competence of the HSE is not running detention centres, obviously, but it very much is a, a whole of government approach. Okay, moving on, I suppose, to um, the vaccination. And I think it's been acknowledged at this point that the rollout in Ireland today, it's slow to start, but definitely a success at this yeah. uh, point. And I think that does need to be acknowledged. But let's look at the schedule uh, going forward because you and many other ministers have said the vaccination is the game changer at this point. Yeah. So am I right in saying we're going to have 1.1 million doses by the end of March? What the task force is comfortable saying is that they have sight of, in other words, they've confirmation of doses coming in to 1.1 million euro. Now, things are moving. Um, we may get more than that. Uh, you know, we got very short notice, as Shona was saying, on, uh, on Pfizer. We got about 24 hours notice that for one week it was going to be uh, slightly lower. It was half the delivery for one week. We got very little notice on AstraZeneca, you know, that they were going to come in substantially below. But then at the same time, we're, we're looking at new options coming on uh, for, for buying more, for opting into more Pfizer or more, more, uh, more Moderna. But what the task force will say right now is that they have... Uh, plans in place and agreements in place to get 1.1 million in by the end of March. So who can hope to be vaccinated then by the end of March at this point? Well, so right now, who are we vaccinating? We're vaccinating the, the first two cohorts. So NIAC, the expert group, have said uh, their whole focus is how do we minimise the damage that this virus does? How do we minimise illness? How do we minimise death? And how do we protect frontline healthcare workers? Because obviously they care for all of those people. So where we're at right now, as of, as of Sunday... Uh, we had vaccinated, we had done about 200,000 vaccines. So 207,000 into the country, 200,000 out. So the focus right now is the nursing homes, the other long-term residential care, the frontline healthcare workers. And then uh, in the coming weeks, we'll be moving on to the over 70s, starting with the over 85s. So when can those over 85s expect to hear from their GPs who are going to be rolling out those vaccines? They can start. They, 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 they can expect to start hearing quite soon. So from, from memory, I think there's... 79,000 uh, over 85s. 
So oh, they... it's quite soon. I know Professor Brian McGrath from the from the task force yeah. said today in the next fortnight. Do you agree with that? I would think there are thereabouts. The HSC and the task force are working through some of the operational details at the moment. But yeah, but soon, in the, com in, in the coming weeks. So we're continuing with cohorts one and two and then starting. And I think it's a really, really important part is we start getting to the over 70s, starting with the over 85s. So at one point you had said that you hoped that the over 70s and those other two groups um, would be vaccinated or would have one dose mm. at least of the vaccination by the end of March. Yeah. That's off the table now, isn't it? What's, what's the new timeline for the over 70s and the frontline staff and those in long-term uh, residential facilities? So what we know is we have sight of 1.1 million. Uh, at the time, we had agreements in place of 1.4 million and obviously AstraZeneca came along and that, that has moved that. But again, the final negotiation with AstraZeneca is still going on. Right, so I'm hoping that it comes up a bit. So because it's moving around, it's impossible to say exactly, but what we can say is that in the coming weeks, we start with the over 70s. Uh, ideally, we get uh, the 1.1 million in, and what we've got to do is we've got to make sure that as soon as these vaccines are arriving into the country, we're getting them into people's arms. Do you expect the 50% of frontline staff that still haven't received their first dose of a vaccine, will they have that by the end of this week, next week, the week after, end of February. Can you give them any reassurance, any date? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, at the moment, the second doses are being done for that first half of the frontline healthcare workers. And then uh, in the next two weeks, we'll be moving on to uh, the, the, the second group of frontline healthcare workers. But again, the details of that, how that's being done, are being worked out with, by the HSC and the task force at the moment. So we just need to give them a bit of space to put some of that detail together. Uh, we saw Bra uh, Professor Brian McCraw also said uh, today that it's the second quarter that is going to be the big quarter for this country, that we could be looking at 250,000 doses a week, a million a month. So that's from April onwards. Is that timeline correct, do you think? Would you agree with that assessment? So can I be very careful about how, what, what we say here? Because in the doll, I, I tried to give an indicative timeline for September and went to great lengths to say that, that, that there is no certainty around these, that all we can do is we can say, if all of these vaccines were to be approved and if we were to get all the supplies in, uh, that we may get, then you could do something by September. And then you're accused of overpromising. Uh, well, I think some people, you know, quite understandably, won't have heard all the caveats. So I just think we need to be really, really careful about uh, the, the volumes that we're talking about in the future. So, so, here, so here's, what I'll, here's what I'd say to what Professor uh, McCraw said was, if the vaccines are approved, and they may not be approved, but if they're approved, and if the drug companies meet the obligations that they've set out. And remember to date, some of them have and some of them haven't. If all of those things were to happen, then the figures that Professor McCraw has given are, are correct. But again, with a very, very heavy caveat uh, that they may not happen, that the drugs may not be approved. Um, authorization could take longer, or indeed, as we have seen in the last seven days, uh, deliveries could be lower than, than contracted. So do we go back then to what you said about September, um, all adults could hope to be vaccinated by September. I think Angela Merkel came out today and you know, told German citizens, you can hope to have your first vaccine by September yeah. if the supplies continue as has been promised. Is that the case here? Directionally. Given on what we know. Directionally. But again, I, I, I'm so cautious about saying it because of all of the caveats and a lot of people you know, the, the, but you they, people they need, hear, need hope, don't they? People well, need to know when we're going to get out of this. Well, that, that's why I gave the September figure, but but it has to be heavily caveated. Uh, and as Chan Chancellor Merkel has said, what, what we can say is this. 
if all of the, 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 the vaccines are authorised and if the drug companies meet the advanced purchase agreements in place for the EU, um, then autumn w w would be that time. But again, there's lots of things that, that, that could mean, as we've seen, that some of those delivery schedules don't come out. So we just, we have to be really careful with these timelines. Uh, speaking of being careful, I want to ask you about the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, because we see France this evening has said that they are not going to approve AstraZeneca for the over 65s, because there just simply isn't enough evidence to say with any certainty that it is effective in that age category. Now, they followed many other European countries have taken this position. What's Ireland's position? Are we going to administer the AstraZeneca vaccine to the over 65s? So the EMA's position, first of all, the European Medicines Agency, what they said a few days ago was that all three of the vaccines are good to use for all adults. Uh, some companies have said, they'd, or some countries have said, they'd like to see more data on the over 65s in terms of the clinical trials. Now, what happened over the last two days is NIAC, which is our expert uh, advisory group, they've sent their advice to the chief medical officer. The chief medical officer has looked at it. Um, and right now, the HSE, the task force, the Department of Health are working through the implications uh, of doing that in different ways. But I think it's really important to say it, it's not about safety. Can we? Because can we, no. this, this, this is really important. It's about it, efficacy, though, no, which is possibly just as important. There's no point giving a vaccine if it's not going to prove as effective against uh, COVID-19 as perhaps the, the Pfizer. Sure, but, let, but let's just be really careful with this, yeah. right? Because there are people out there who would love to you know, the anti-vax group would love to yeah. suggest that things aren't safe when they are. So the really important message is that the European Medicines Agency and our own experts have said that all three vaccines are safe and effective uh, at all at all ages of. Well, to be it, honest, our own health regulatory authority was out yesterday and said they cannot say with certainty that it is effective in the over 65s. They specifically I, said that yesterday. I, I, I think it was efficacy, was it not, that they questioned? So I, I, I didn't hear exactly what you're referring to, but I, I think based on what they've said to me and what, what they've sent in, I, I, I would guess what they've said is that they may not be able to give as much certainty on the level of effectiveness, but I don't think there's any question as to whether or not they are effective. They, they are effective and all three of them are effective. Final question, at what point do we need to get to where the layer or the levels of vaccination is actually going to have an impact on the level of restrictions that we're living under? Yeah. Do we know? We, we don't, and, and, and no country does, but it's, it's this... So what's going on right now, right? We've, we're, we're in level five till the 5th of March. The virus is still really high. We've got to push it right down, way lower than it is right now. We've got to keep pushing it down and down and down. We've got to vaccinate as soon as we get them in. And then we'll be looking for public health advice, right? Because there's a few different, um, there's a few different unknowns for us and for everyone else. One is the variants, right? And just what the impact of the UK variant is. So for example, the chief medical officer pointed out yesterday that while the cases are still going down, the rate of decreases is slowing. There's also some big unknowns around the vaccines, now, not around the safety and not around the effectiveness, but for example, the impact on transmissibility. And as Ireland and the rest of the world gets more and more information about that, we'll be able to make more informed decisions. The hope obviously is that the vaccines, we know they're effective, the hope is they have a big effect on transmissibility. They reduce transmissibility. Right. We can push the virus down. And then from March onwards, very carefully and very cautiously and just, begin to open up. OK, very quickly, I just want to ask you about the death toll today, over 100, the highest ever since COVID you know, came in and wreaked havoc in this country. I mean, that's devastating for the public and for those family members. It's heartbreaking. 
it's heartbreaking. It's 101 men and women, a lot, a lot of different ages. Um, it's 101 families tonight who are mourning. And not only are they mourning, but they're having to mourn at a time when no one can mourn the way they want to. It is, it is really tough and our, our thoughts are really with them, with the friends, with the families of all of those people. Okay, we'll leave it there. Um, Mr. Ralph Stevens, only thank you for coming into us uh, this evening. Now, coming up with a partial return to special education next week, we hear from one parent who says the government's efforts are not going far enough. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. You're very welcome back. Well, joining me here in studio now to discuss the partial return of school for children with special educational needs is Social Democrat TD Catherine Murphy and Dr. Carol Barron from DCU joins us via Skype. But first, parent Deirdre Kiernan is also joining us via Skype to tell us why the partial return that's been offered to her daughter, Kate, who is 17, simply doesn't go far enough. Why do you say that, Deirdre? Evening, Kira. Uh, well, firstly, I suppose I have to say I do welcome the fact that schools are going to reopen. Um, however, the Minister, in fairness to her, she did offer to open schools um, three weeks ago. But offering an opening on February the 11th, for which will be one day if it's a parcel opening, um, then midterm break for a week. It'll be 10 days before my daughter will go back to school again. So that'll only cause more distress, if anything. And there's a number of parents who will be in the same position. And secondly, it's opening partly 50%. What's going to school one day, staying at home the second day, and going back the next day going to do? After almost, it'll be, what, two months? since they've been at school. So when Kate goes to school, for example, on a Monday, she's going to assume when she doesn't go on Tuesday, we're back to square one again. School closure hasn't created Kate's behaviours and her challenges, but they're certainly not helping them. Her anxiety is through the roof at the moment. The noise level in the house is so intense that we can't even hold a thought. Um, and when she goes to school, if she gets up in, in the morning and she's in a, a, 
bad mood, she's having a bad day. Well, when she gets on the bus, by the time she's down the road a little bit, that circuit's broken. She gets to school and then continues on with her day and comes home. And however the evening will go after that, it goes. But she has something to live for. She has something to look forward to, to get up for. Monday's Kate's favourite day of the week because she's gone to school. So it's, it's not, school is not an educational facility for children like Kate. It's a way of life. It's part of our whole social circle. She doesn't have a social circle outside school. It's, it's everything to her except the little family that we live in. And it's everything I'd imagine to you, Deirdre, as her mother and to her two siblings who are at home uh, as well. I mean, it has a huge impact on the whole household, doesn't it? Oh, it's, it's immense. We, we have to try and stay well to look after our three children. My two boys are at home, homeschooling. It's, it's difficult for them. Oh, we, we need a chance to reset as well. Um, when we're on high alert 24-7 now, we can't have a conversation. I can't have a conversation with my husband or my boys. It's impossible. Not, not just conversation. A few words is impossible because Kate gets very anxious when attention is taken away from her. She has no hobbies. She has no interest in television, iPad, phones, any, any kind of screen. So therefore, remote learning is not even an option for her. Uh, Deirdre, thank but, you for taking the time to speak to us. I, I know. I just wanted to say. I just wanted to say another thing about it's. It's important to open special schools, not partially, fully, mm. and and not not on the twenty second for a little while and then have no end plan. But it's also important to open all schools. I'm really worried that children in special classes in secondary school haven't even been mentioned. Children with additional learning needs in mainstream aren't even mentioned. What's going to become of them? I they want can't to slip through the points. Um, Deirdre, I want to put your points to uh, Dr. Carol Barron, who's also joining us on Skype this evening, because, Doctor, you've carried out um, research into the impact that these lockdowns are having on our children and found that they disproportionately affect children with special needs. Tell us about your study and, and their findings. Yes, that's right. Thank you very much for having me, Kira. Um, here in DCU, we did an online survey back in May, June, um, on the on the impact, and we looked at fourteen hundred parents and children, a lot of them with special needs, because we focused on that area. And the immediate response in May was the lack of routine. So it was, um, say, children with autism, they're used to getting up at a certain time, eating at a certain time, going to school at a certain time. And they found it extremely difficult to cope with this, this disruption to their routine. Nearly all the parents um, spoke about regression. So their child regressed emotionally, socially, behaviorally or, or educationally. And that regression ranged from very mild to quite severe and everywhere in between. Uh, parents reported increase in challenging behaviours and difficulty or more difficulty with children maintaining and controlling their emotions. Mm. Um, the, yeah. 
And the results obviously were from, you know, the first lockdown. We've had two yes. subsequent lockdowns since then, and although schools remained open in the second, they've now been closed uh, since the 22nd of December. And I want to, I suppose, put that to uh, Catherine Murphy. Look, it's heartbreaking, I think, when you hear a mother like that saying that her child's life you know, and quality of life depends on her being able to attend her special school full time and going in for one day next week and then not going in for another 10 days and then going in every second days just isn't good enough. It's it's insufficient. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I too would say that I welcome the fact that there that there is a that, that there is some degree of opening. It's obviously it's 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 not adequate because of what has been described. And um, I wouldn't be immune to hearing um, those kind of cases because people will come to you with, uh, you know, with with their own personal stories. Um, and we'd be more than aware of the of, of the anxiety that's been created. Um, I think it's a start. Uh, I think that you've got to recognise that there was very high levels of anxiety because of the uh, very high levels of COVID. Um, and that had, had to be got down and it, it is coming down, not quickly enough. And that has been, I mean, obviously that was a huge reason why the meaningful Christmas turned out into an absolute disaster. But we now have our COVID numbers for that. Um, less than a thousand today. Yeah. Uh, they're less actually than what they were in the second surge when the schools remained open. So is it acceptable, do you think, that schools remain um, closed indefinitely, that these special needs classes are only open at 50% capacity, special needs schools at 50% capacity. I think the special needs classrooms uh, within mainstream schools won't open until the 22nd of February. That's yeah, another three and, weeks for these children. And Deirdre is quite right. There is a cohort there that are completely missed in this and that that is children. What's, what's planned for the 22nd is um, special classes within mainstream schools rather than children in mainstream schools with 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 requiring uh, who have special needs and require special education. So who are so, you holding responsible uh, at this stage? Because well, I, I, I don't think it was well handled. To be perfectly honest, which I think there was an announcement made, but there was a inadequate appreciation of the fear that was felt. Um, and I don't think that it was particularly helpful that there was a that that people ended up pitched against each other. I think we need a pathway back uh, with some degree of certainty in terms of special education to begin with. Uh, but, but the minister, Minister Foley, said yesterday, this is positive news. We now have a concrete path. It is a path. It, it is, is a start, but it's not a pathway back with a degree of certainty. And, and one of the things that, that I've found uh, with with parents is that they have struggled very often. Any, I've never met a parent with a child with a special need that didn't have a big bundle of, a big f folder under their arm where they've had to lobby for services. And I think that there is a concern that if you lose something, that it stays lost. And I think that there is a, a real concern about the... And I think there has got to be a rebuilding back towards something way better and a compensation for what has been lost here um, because uh, it's very difficult, particularly with a child with, say, with autism, to create a new um, routine for themselves and you can't keep on doing this. OK, just very quickly, um, Dr Barron, you um, spoke to parents about what they really wanted to see reintroduced into their children's lives and the most important thing was school again, wasn't it? Yeah, the, the parents wanted the reopening of schools 
um, for, for their children. And on top of that, um, a lot of schools deliver therapies like physiotherapy, speech and language, uh, occupational therapy. And they wanted more supports for those put in because they felt the children had regressed hugely. All right, we're going to have to leave it uh, there. And just to make you aware, we did invite uh, forces that represents special needs uh, assistance on the programme this evening, but they weren't available. My thanks to Deirdre and Dr. Carol Barron for joining us. Catherine Murphy will be staying with us for part three. And after the break, we're going to be discussing the drug driving arrest figures. They might surprise you for 2020. Welcome back. Well, new figures released to The Tonight Show by The Gardaí show 2,755 arrests were made last year alone for suspected drug driving. Well, Social Democrats Justice Spokesperson Catherine Murphy is still here and we're also joined by road safety campaigner Leo Ligio. Um, and thank you for uh, joining me. I just want to look at those uh, figures for a second, uh, Catherine. 2,755 um, and in the lockdown months of you know June, July, um, May, June, July, over 200 cases every month, 262 in June, 265 in July. We're just looking at those figures now. I think those will surprise people, given the fact that we were in lockdown and there seemed to be so little traffic uh, on the roads uh, on those months, during those months. Yeah, I think one of the things that has been different in the last year is that there's a different type of policing. You've got more proactive policing. Um, the AA did a, a survey over December and January and uh, they surveyed 6,000 people and almost half of them had been stopped at a at a, at a, a road check. Now, it's usually just ask people where they're going, but road checks do have other functions and they do detect things like this. If you don't have that kind of proactive policing and you have a reactive policing that is just about going after a crime that has been committed, um, well then you, you, don't, you don't catch these kind of crimes. Um, I mean, obviously these these are on the statute books because we need to have our roads as safe as they possibly can be and somebody that's impaired because they have um, either uh, drink or drugs on board um, is is a threat to other people on, on the road and in, indeed including the person themselves. Now what's changed since 20, uh, 2017 is that, that the, the, you can be tested on the side of the road but there has always been a, a, a means of, of prosecuting people for... Uh, the guards are now able to do a test they are, to like see the if there's drugs in the system. Like like kind of laser. Yeah. Um, Leo, your lovely daughter, um, Marcia, was 16 when she, she was killed. 16, yeah. in, a, in a hit and run. I was back in 2005. 2005, yeah. So 15 years ago, but um, I can't imagine uh, as a father, 15 years makes any difference or it gets any easier. She was killed by a known drug addict. Known drug addict, yeah. And uh, 15 years, I can remember back to that week she spent in hospital, Tan and Bowmount, like it was yesterday. Some parts afterwards are just blanks, they're just numb. But that time she was in hospital, it's, it's something I don't want, we don't want people going through. And that's why we can't, that's what, why we do what we do. We're just trying to prevent other families going through what we go, we've gone through. And what you continue to go through. And always will. Uh, she was killed just crossing the road with a pal coming from a party. It's coming from a 50th birthday party, yeah. She was crossing the road at a set of pedestrian lights and a... The car hit her at approximately 80 kilometres an hour, knocked her out of her runners at the height of the traffic lights. She fought for about a week, six, six, just a little over six days, 
and uh, on her sister's birthday we ended up having it so we were told that she was gone and the life support machine was turned off. The impact that that's had on your family, I take it, has been absolutely astronomical. It's been devastating. Like it's, it's very hard for her sister Leah because they were very close. There was ten months between them, and Leah doesn't celebrate her birthday anymore because not on not on that date anymore because what happened. Theresa, we're moving on because we have to move on. But that pain is always is always there and always will be there and. What we have to do now is try and make the most of that pain and try and help others by what we do with Inerva, by we go around the schools, talking to the children, the transition year students, and try and educate them with the dangers and connect with the access Road Safe Road Show. And we, we do that as well with them. I've personally told Marsha's story to at least over 10,000 transition year students. And the person who is responsible for taking her life, they were caught and they were convicted. They were caught and convicted on motoring offences and she got 10 months. And I was glad to hear Catherine calling them crimes because, but they're not treated as crimes. They're treated as road traffic offences. Like drink driving is not a crime. It's only an offence. She was getting the maximum sentence for each traffic offence is six months. At that time, it was only one year for leaving the scene of an accident. It wasn't enough and no, for you no, or your family. Do you are, think there's an, an awareness out there, the way we have, I suppose, awareness about the dangers around drink driving when it comes to drug driving? I don't think so. I don't people don't treat it. I don't think people look at it as the same. They think it's okay to have to take a drug. Or I, I drove a taxi for years and I listened to the talk shows and I heard taxi drivers ringing up and saying, this smoke a joint going out to work. That's not right. They think they're better drivers when they have drugs, when they have, they have smoked a joint or taken drugs. Craziness. Madness. If you want to take drugs, take drugs is all you want. But don't put my children's lives in danger. Don't put anybody's life in danger. And the one thing that you were saying there, Catherine, you feel works is, you know, having police or guardy checkpoints. You need to be, as we've seen here, given the figures for last year, 2,755, having an increased guard presence on the road meant that more people were caught. But do yeah. we need to see, you know, an information campaign? Do we need to see drug driving taken as seriously in this country as drink driving was taken? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that there is an appreciation that, uh, of the prevalence of it. And I don't think then there, it's appreciated that, for example, if somebody is caught on a first offence if they're impaired and they're, uh, they test positive for, for the drugs that they test for, um, that they would get, for example, a four-year driving ban on a first offence, plus uh, possibly a six-month prison sentence and a hefty fine. Um, but I think that the, the local knowledge in relation to the community guards um, plus the uh, the road checks, I think, are very effective. Um, and I think being caught is a deterrent. Um, but the problem is that there's a lot of people who don't are, who are not caught. And if you look at the uh, the the way the the guard are, like just fourteen thousand guards, a little over fourteen thousand guards in the country, but there's a very unequal distribution of guards, and you can find that that it's patchy, and that's one of the things that I'm going to look at is is there an even spread here, and how does that compare to what it was like prior to COVID, because that will tell us something about the type of policing and how effective it can be. Uh, Leo, briefly, I'm afraid we don't have a lot of time left. We have two thousand seven hundred and fifty-five detections. We don't have the rate uh, of convictions, unfortunately, and you say they're much lower. That's what I would love to see. Like we had the the, the, the drink driving or speeding of uh, convictions last year, and it was uproar over that. But we don't have the figures for the drug driving. And like it's, like it's, 
any time there's anything brought up about road traffic safety, saving people's lives, there's always objections. Like even with the Shane Ross speeding, speeding uh, graduated speeding limit. What is wrong with that? There was resistance. Well, how, right. can, how can it be a contradiction, uh, a mixed up site? <laughs> oh, you're all right. Um, thank you for coming in no to problem. me uh, this evening, Leo. And sorry, we, we've run out of time. Uh, thank you for your contribution to Catherine. If you've been affected by any of the issues um, raised in our discussion, uh, the support line is available there. Good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.